Trust me, I'm like a smart person. So it was this trial for this thing called DCS. I don't even know what that stands for, but... I looked this up and it stands for Transcranial Direct Current Stimulation, or TDCS. Right, and it was it was an experimental treatment for depression. And so I signed up for it, but understood that it was going to be, you know, 50-50 chance of me either getting it or not. That's my friend Q. What she's describing here is that time that she was a guinea pig in a randomised controlled trial. You've probably heard of randomised trials, or at least you've definitely benefited from them. They're the gold standard in medical research. And the idea is really stunningly simple and effective. You take a group of people with fairly similar characteristics and split it in two. You give one half the treatment and the other a placebo without telling them who gets what. And where possible, you make it so the researchers administering the intervention don't even know who's getting what. Did the paperwork, went in for 30 days straight of 20 to 25 minutes worth of being hooked up to these head pad things and having this gentle current of electricity pulse into my head while I stared at a wall. I think it worked. Today on Trust Me, I'm an Expert, we're bringing you stories of evidence. What makes good evidence? How what we think of as evidence is changing and how we might all start to use more evidence in our decision-making to come up with better decisions. We'll come back to Q and the weird history of randomised controlled trials a bit later in the episode and hang around till the end to hear the findings of that study she was involved in. But first, let's talk about a different type of evidence, digital forensic evidence. The recent Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal you've probably heard about has really focused people's attention on what data they may unwittingly be giving away. But even if you're not on Facebook, you probably have a phone and you probably take photos with it. And those photos on your phone... No matter how crappy or blurry or poorly framed they are, they may reveal more about you than you realise. Ariel Bogle, who was our tech editor but has since moved to the ABC, where she's doing some really amazing reporting, by the way, has this story. My friends and I blithely take photos all the time. Not brunch pics, give us some credit. But sure, a nice sunset, a funny poster, the odd selfie... But our photos are sharing a lot more than our weekend habits with the world. Each photo you take contains metadata, which can reveal quite a lot about where you've been and what you've been doing. You were at Terminal T5B. Not sure if you can remember that level of detail. I can't remember. But And sitting on the right-hand side of the plane. Ooh, I was! Wow. I decided to give an expert a call to find out more. That's Richard Matthews, a PhD candidate at the University of Adelaide. He researches digital forensics, and according to him, your smartphone could be telling the world a lot more than you think. So from an iPhone, um, what we've seen is we can gain uh, a lot of the GPS uh, information. Um, A lot of people actually don't don't stop iPhones from tagging their GPS location. So we have, for example, GPS latitude, GPS longitude, and then both of those two put into the one tag called GPS position. Um, This is useful if you want to try and verify the data to make sure that somebody hasn't modified one of those tags. They have to modify all three to try and kind of spoof the position, if you like. Uh, You've also got the the height at which the uh, photo was taken, so GPS altitude. From there, you can also see uh, other tags, such as the software version that an iPhone has. So whether it's been updated to the latest uh, version of iOS, 
Um, and then you've just got the generic tags that are in the majority of photos themselves. So the, the modifier date, uh, the type of file that it is, the size of the file. To get a better idea of what our phone metadata can reveal, I gave Richard photos from two conversation colleagues for him to analyse. He used a number of tools, some of which are freely available to anyone online, to examine the metadata of Lucinda and Sananda's photos. To be honest, it was pretty revealing. I'm going to let them know just what I've found out. So I got the results back from Richard Matthews of the photos you sent me, and so I thought we'd start with Lucinda's first. Do you remember what your photo was? Yes, it was a photo of Mark Colvin's memoir, Light and Shadow, the book, and it's on my lap. I was sitting on a plane. So here is some of the analysis he gave me. He says you have an iPhone 5S, is that right? True. So he said also that the photo was taken on um, the 2nd of July. Yeah, that's right. So at that time, he says you were running um, version 10, um, 10.1.11, which is the old Apple software. That sounds about right. <laughs> so not, <laughs> you're not very good at keeping your software updated? I did update it just this week. Okay. Well, he was saying that, um, you know, if someone had a photo off your phone, saw that you're using an old version of the software, if they were really wanted to get into your phone, they could sort of use the known vulnerabilities in old software um, to get into your phone because, of course, Apple updates software to patch security flaws and things like that. I thought it was just for new emojis. Incorrect. (laughs) That's a worry. We'll talk about location now. They think this photo was taken at Heathrow Airport. It was. And sitting on the right-hand side of the plane. Oh, I was. Wow. So this, you can see in this picture here, you've got the longitude and latitude, and they can see what part of the airport you were. And then also given the location place exactly where you may have been on the plane. I was on the right-hand side of the plane. That is gotcha. pretty <laughs> freaky. <laughs> and here, um, their views, he says he's, cross-re- he's cross-referencing it with the terminal map of Heathrow, which is just freely available online to anybody. Using Starbuck- Starbucks as the locating sort of situation, they can see that the plane is boarding from gate B37, suggesting it's either British Airways or Iberia. Iberia. <gasps> Sorry. That is wow. pretty freaky. I'm surprised. Yeah? Yeah. That that, le- that sort of level of specificity? I thought he would get it right, and yeah. I thought it would be specific, but I didn't think about how that would translate into knowing where I sat on a plane, on which airline. Right. Yeah. So, do you remember your photo? Yes, I do. And what was in it? It was a photo of my kid at her school. So you have your phone locked down pretty well. Okay. He could hardly I'm get pleased. anything off it. I'm um, pleased. can determine the make and model, though, 5S. Yes. Um, and it, the software was updated to its yes. appropriate level. Yes. So Lucinda, kudos take to you. <laughs> I always update. I'm very yeah. persnickety about updating, yes. And the photo was taken presumably before school because kid, your kid is in a school uniform at 8.47 a.m. on the 18th of May. Yes, correct. But they couldn't get the location data because I think you must have on your phone your location turned off. Yes, I do. So that is not in the photo. So congrats to you. No one can work out where your kid goes to school. Excellent. That is quite reassuring. I do have location data turned off for most of of my phone, uh, most of the apps and, you know, as much as I can. So by now, you might be a bit freaked out about what your photos can reveal. But if you're posting tons of photos on Facebook of your life and your kids... Don't freak out completely. Here's Richard again. Facebook is uh, very cluey on this. They've actually been sued quite a f- quite a few times in the past, so they started removing their um, a lot of the metadata that was attached to it. Still, it might be time to check your location services on your smartphone. 
Companies aren't going to stop uh, putting metadata in photos. What we're probably going to see is people become more conscious and aware of the fact that if we're taking a photograph, for example, or any other document, there is actually data about what we've done embedded into that file itself. So we need to be cautious of what we're doing, how we're doing it, and where we're exposing this information. So, I mean, what the, the deal was that at the end of the 30 days, you had the option of doing an extra 30 days of guaranteed real treatment. Oh, well, I was going to ask, why did you do it? Well, I'd read up quite a bit about it. I'd read about, you know, people doing DIY um, DCS with nine volt batteries and trying to make themselves think better, have better memories and, and what have you. And I was lacking that kind of focus, which as it turns out was all due to the, the depression. Like a lot of people do, I think they look for a, you know, silver bullet solution. Um, and the idea of just being zapped in the head and being fine was really appealing. So I gave it a go. <laughs> You make it sound super appealing. It, it, it actually was quite pleasant. When people like Q take part in a randomised controlled trial, they might get a benefit. But they're also doing an enormous favour to us all. By being in the trial, you give, I guess, researchers and the community a chance to establish that a new treatment works and that, thanks to the trial, might become available to, the, to everyone else in the future. That's Laurent Biot. I'm the director of the Statistics Division at the George Institute and um, Associate Professor at UNSW. The reason why we do a trial is because we don't know the answer. So, I mean, from the participants' perspective, it's often a way to access a treatment that they wouldn't have a chance to access otherwise. It's a chance to get early access to something that might actually work very well. It's also, once you're in a trial, um, you're looked after really well. I mean, there's a follow-up that's usually much more closer and much more intense than in real practice. So you, you know, your chances of things going wrong are actually uh, probably less likely than in real life in many ways because, and we know that from experience with trials that even people who get the placebo tend to do better than people who don't get treatment otherwise because they see a doctor more often than they would otherwise. Randomised controlled trials are used all the time in medical research but not often enough in policy or law. That's the argument made in Andrew Lee's new book, Randomistas, How Radical Research Has Changed Our World. Andrew Lee, as you probably know, is an MP. He's the member for Fenner and Shadow Assistant Treasurer in the Labor Party. But in a previous life, he was a professor of economics at the Australian National University. He writes in this book about the weird history of randomised controlled trials, including how a naval scientist called James Lind tested vinegar, citrus and other things on sailors with scurvy, And he found that citrus worked. And eventually, Lee says, Britain won the Battle of Trafalgar partly because they'd managed to find a cure for scurvy through a randomised trial. Lee spoke with the University of Melbourne's Dr Fiona Fiddler, an expert on the history of science and the replication crisis, about how we should be using randomised trials more to drive decisions and policy. We've published this interview in full on the Conversations Speaking With podcast, but we're just playing a short snippet here today. We're starting at the point where Dr Fiddler asked Andrew Lee to name his favourite example of a randomised controlled trial. Well, it's hard to go past uh, sham surgery, uh, surgery in which uh, patients randomly agree to either get the real surgery or to be sliced open, not have the surgery performed, 
be sewn up again uh, and not be told afterwards that that's what's happened to them. Um, the sham surgery is so far developed to the extent that they will actually keep patients uh, on the table for the same duration as the real experiment. Uh, there's a Melbourne University researcher by the name of Peter Chung who's pioneering this. Uh, and I remember the first question I asked him is, who would consent to sham surgery? Uh, and he said, Andrew, you, you have to realise uh, the extent to which people will do what their surgeon suggests. Uh, he said, sometimes even uh, I need to make sure that my patients, having initially consented to my face, have a debrief with a nurse who really explains, now you honestly understand, you might be sliced open and not get the operation. Uh, so that's, that's fascinating. It's producing really interesting results. Three quarter of patients feel better after surgery, but in half the cases, the sham surgery patients feel just the same as the real surgery patients. And what unites these diverse examples? Yes, I know. So it's, a, it's that powerful tool of tossing a coin to assign people to a treatment and control group. Uh, the sheer simplicity of uh, being able to set up a credible counterfactual uh, by, uh, by, by using uh, randomness and the law of large numbers. Uh, so if you want to know whether uh, sleep makes you happier, you might take 200 people, toss a coin, uh, 100 be heads, 100 be tails. You ask the heads group to get an extra night's sleep uh, and then you survey happiness uh, afterwards. And uh, if the heads group are happier, then you're pretty sure you've got a causal effect of sleep on happiness uh, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get from a mere observational study, which might be uh, plagued by the fact that happy people tend to go to bed earlier. Reverse causality. I think it's fair to say that there's a clear argument through the book that you think there should be more randomised trials. In which areas is there most silently an absence of this type of evidence? Law is one area that uh, has almost an entire absence of randomised trials. There's some in the law enforcement area, the uh, domestic violence randomised trials, which very much change practice towards uh, arresting uh, offenders. Uh, and the drug court ra randomised trial in New South Wales, which sh showed that spending a bit more and working on the addiction problem uh, was better than the traditional criminal justice process. But by and large, law ha hasn't done many randomised trials. You wouldn't get many randomisters within law schools. Uh, plastic surgery is uh, almost, uh, random randomised trials are almost entirely absent. Uh, apparently plastic surgery is, is basically uh, a craft and uh, people whose job it is to, uh, to, to fix a, a nose that's a bit skew-if um, have their own way of doing it and those, uh, those techniques aren't generally evaluated. Uh, and then of course education policy, social, social policy, uh, surgery are areas where the randomisters are making inroads but, but very slowly. Not everything can be randomised, but many more things should be randomised. There, there's another strong message running through the book, I think, and that is that randomised trials don't necessarily have to be enormous or expensive. You've anticipated um, a criticism, I guess, that people will be resistant to this idea because they think it's beyond the scope of what they can afford or manage. Yes, I think we look at the, the famous randomised trials, Perry Preschool, which randomises uh, across high-quality early childhood and follows kids up for, uh, for 40 years afterwards. And we look at the millions of dollars there and think if you don't have millions of dollars, you can't do a randomised trial. Uh, but sometimes they're just about free, as, uh, as when... Uh, the uh, uh, in, uh, government, Indian government in Andhra Pradesh decided to, in the rollout of biometric smart cards that it would roll them out across 19 million people, uh, not in an ad hoc way, but in a random way. 
uh, they couldn't give it to every to, to everyone, and so they uh, they they allowed the researcher uh, Karthik Malitran and his co co-authors uh, to learn something about the causal impact. Likewise, Progressa, conditional cash transfers to uh, Mexi Mexican villages, conditional on going to school. Uh, they couldn't do all the villages in year, year one. They had to spread them over two years. Um, so why not toss a coin and decide who's getting year one, year two? And then the really simple things, uh, like the experiment that I once did when I was teaching at the Australian National University to see whether wearing a tie made my students rate, uh, rate my lectures as better. Uh, surveyed them after each lecture tossed a coin to decide whether or not I'd wear a tie, and it turned out that uh, the quality of my attire had uh, no impact <laughs> on students' ratings. You can hear that interview in full on our Speaking With podcast. And while you're browsing around your podcast app, go and check out Andrew Lee's podcast, The Good Life. And our next segment today is about another weird bit of science history, the curious case of the N-rays. Madeleine de Gabrielli from The Conversation brings you this story. You've probably heard of X-rays, but you've probably never heard of N-rays, because N-rays don't actually exist. But everybody thought N-rays existed for a brief, exciting period at the start of the 20th century. So it's 1903, just eight years after X-rays have been discovered, and a French scientist called René Blondelot announces he's found an exciting new kind of radiation that emanates from the sun and metals and people. So scientists start shooting them at all kinds of things, including people's heads, and report they can actually enhance your senses. And if you stand behind a special screen, N-rays show glowing dots in people's brains. Dozens of scientists are publishing these crazy results. But for some reason, a lot of other scientists can't detect N-rays at all. And Blondelot says they're probably setting the experiments up wrong. Eventually, Nature magazine sends a well-known American physicist and skeptic called Robert Wood to Blundlot's laboratory to work out what's going on. So Blundlot puts on a demonstration where he shoots N-rays through a lump of metal into a screen which lights up in patterns. Unfortunately for Blundlot, Wood quietly pockets the crucial lump of metal halfway through the demonstration but Blundlot doesn't notice and keeps describing patterns of light now being generated by absolutely nothing. Wood publishes his story in Nature, which is why you've never heard of N-rays. They lasted just over a year, although Blundlot continued to believe in them until he died five years later. To me, this is a fascinating story of the power of suggestion. If you sit people in a dim room and tell them a screen is glowing, lots of people will really see it. To talk about the danger of believing your own eyes, here's Will Grant. My name is uh, Will Grant. I'm from the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science or podcasting at The Wholesome Show. What do you see as the big lesson scientists can learn from NRAIS? Look, I think, I think the fascinating thing uh, about the NRAIS story is that it tells us really that uh, scientists are human. Something that we have to recognise is that scientists have wants and desires about their research and they want to find new things. They want to make big, disco big discoveries. They want to find the interesting thing that no one has ever found before. How do scientists try to account for their own human desires? I think there are a lot of things that we can and should do to reduce our human biases. Some are done by 
by individual researchers. So while we're doing our experiments, then you know, we might um, blind ourselves to which condition different people or different, um, different sides of the experiment are in. But later on, there's other sorts of blinding where we get peer review. We get people who should be disinterested in the scientific research at hand uh, and getting them to have a look at it to test that our sums are correct. There's a bunch of other things as well. After peer review, you know, we, we go out there and, and discuss our work and see if other people can find it, see if they can replicate it. So all the way through the process, there are things that we can do to help reduce the extent of human error. But even in the best research, there, there may still be human error. There may be things that we haven't realized that we're, we're, that we're doing wrong. As, did it take a long time to develop these kinds of protocols? Because we're talking about 1903, which is not exactly, you know, the dark ages in terms of scientific process. You know, people had discovered X-rays and electrons and radioactivity and all other kinds of, you know, hidden forces in the universe. But why did it take so long <laughs> to develop this this kind of what would seem like a basic scientific protocol? Look, I think that if we if we're broad in the definition of blinding. And that might mean blinding within ex experiments or blinding during peer review um, or other sorts of blinding. We are still having that conversation. There are, for example, um, some scientific disciplines believe very much in, uh, in a double blind peer review. So you submit the article and, um, and the authors take their names off it and the reviewers are anonymous as well. Other disciplines very much believe, well, you take the author's um, the author's names off there, then the reviewers might spend their time trying to guess who the who the author is. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that, but there are still debates within different scientific disciplines about the merits of blinding different aspects. Now, I think definitely there aren't many who who would say um, within an experiment we shouldn't blind ourselves to the different experimental conditions, but it's it's still a debate. So if you're if you're a member of the public or if you're a scientist and you're looking at a research and you'd like to assess how credible possibly that research is, what can you look for that signals these people have taken care to yeah. cut out some of their own wishful thinking? Within medical fields, there's a clear hierarchy of evidence. and. This is not a rejection of lower forms of evidence, and I'll just discuss those in a second. It's a recognition that sometimes you have to work with evidence that is not perfect. It's not as good as it could be. So, for example, at the bottom of, of the scale of medical evidence, they have case studies where someone walks in and they've got some sort of weird condition. And that is a form of evidence. It's one person and one doctor uh, reviewing that case and taking as much information as they can. Now, we don't throw that out because it's just one person, just one doctor, but we don't base our entire medical system on that one story. At the other end of the extreme, they have, um, you know, the gold standard of double-blind controlled uh, trials where, you know, the, uh, you have placebos and both doctors and patients don't know who's in which condition and you can get a large, a large number of people and see, okay, what is the difference? In general, we are, we are better off having those higher standards of evidence. We are better off having systems where the researchers, the patients have been blinded, but also you know, we're better off when there are uh, larger numbers in the study. But we can't ignore the fact that we can't always get all of that sort of, all of the high levels of evidence that we might want. 
The fact that there are different levels of evidence and, and scientists do talk about things like different levels of evidence and blinding and these kind of fairly technical terms for, you know, differing levels of proof um, can, I think, can sometimes make it a bit hard to communicate to a general public or even people maybe outside your discipline the exact um, significance of what you found and how much it's to be trusted and also I think the idea that sometimes initial studies are the start of a process. In some ways um, we scientists set ourselves up for uh, a, potentially a failure here because within a scientific world we are always trying both individually in our own personal characteristics and culturally and, and disciplinary-wise, to get better and better and better and better evidence. And we critique all the time. We say, you know, there's, you know, we talk to each other and we say, well, you can improve that, that research, that piece of evidence, by doing this, by doing that. And we would hope that the next time that researcher goes out and collects similar data, that they do the slightly better version and then the slightly better version. And that is a really important part of science, that we're going and, and doing things better all the time. But when we go out to the wider world and, and, um, and talk about giving people evidence that they might be able to use in their lives or they might be able to um, uh, implement into policy or anything like that, I'm reminded of a, a classic paper. Uh, I think it came from the 50s, where this goes back to the idea of the, the double-blind controlled trial in medical research. And this paper argued, and I think the title would have been enough, that there are many conditions where we should act without the full evidence. We should give our soldiers or people who are about to jump out of a plane parachutes without doing a double, double blind controlled trial on whether parachutes work. And I think that, you know, everyone agrees. You don't, you don't want to do a full trial on the efficacy of parachutes because A, that's unethical, but B, you end up with a whole lot of deaths on your hands. So we are forced to act in a world that that we act on imperfect evidence but we do that all the time and we cope with that fact we say you know i'm going to cope with the risk of having imperfect evidence we try to get better evidence but sometimes the point is we just should act and most people i think are actually really quite happy with that and we should stop beating ourselves up in the world of science for not providing perfect evidence I want to end this segment by coming back to Rene Blondler because it's unfair to think of him as somehow particularly stupid. For example, he was the first person to confirm that radio waves travel at the speed of light in 1891. And the NRA story isn't just about a big mistake. It's also a story about how science is supposed to work, where people check each other's theories and run more tests and call each other out. Because sometimes seeing is believing, but not proof. And finally, there's one loose thread we have to tie up here. That TDCS brain stimulation trial that Q was involved in. It was run by Colleen Liu a professor in the School of Psychiatry at UNSW and a professorial fellow at the Black Dog Institute. It was part of four trials they did on this, and they pulled the data with some international researchers into a meta-analysis. 
Um, and so what we found overall in these trials is that uh, TDCS is a promising new treatment for depression, uh, that by and large people are uh, improving more with the real treatment than with the placebo version. Now, people often want to know how well does it work? So, you know, do I have a one in four chance of improving or one in two chance or whatever? And, you know, uh, it's hard to give you an overall number, but what we did find was it depends on how hard to treat your depression is. So the more what we call treatment resistant, like if you're someone who's failed, you know, 10 courses of medication prior to coming for TDCS, your chances of improving are less than someone who'd failed, you know, one course of antidepressant medications before coming for TDCS. Uh, but, you know, the, the kind of numbers of people improving are very promising. They're probably in the kind of the 25 to 50% ballpark. 25, 50% feeling better after the treatment? Yes. And, and, and this is, again, for kind of maybe your average depressed uh, person. Now, if you're thinking of trying this on yourself at home, which people have done, a word of warning from Professor Liu. It's a lot safer to do with proper clinical supervision, and it's not going to be right for everyone. You know, I don't think we can say to about any treatment, no matter how good the treatment is, that it is the right treatment for all people without knowing anything about your particular circumstances or your particular illness. I think that's, you know, quite dangerous. And can I say one more thing about that? That, as I've said, the technology is portable, it's inexpensive, and we have been looking at a new way of using it where people do it at home, but under supervision. So what we do is we bring people in, we do that very careful one to two hour evaluation. If we think that this treatment could be beneficial to you, we then teach you how to do the stimulation. And we actually give you a mini exam where we actually examine you to see, can you do it? And if you can, we send you home with the equipment, but it's not just any equipment, it's specially programmed so that we have pre-programmed the parameters here at our center. So you can't kind of wrongly use the equipment and you know stimulate yourself for five hours rather than half an hour or at the wrong parameters. At the same time, we're monitoring you carefully. So we would actually get you to tell us, you know, every time you do the treatment, what are the side effects? How are you feeling? Uh, and we keep a very close eye on you. So it's got all the advantages of doing it at home uh, and we keep in close contact with them. So we're just finishing up a research trial where we've been looking at this way of doing TDCS uh, for up to six months uh, with very, very promising results. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. Special thanks today to Ariel Bogle, Madeline de Gabrielli and Q, and to all the academics who made time to talk to us. Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this podcast from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of credits on our website at theconversation.com.